Welcome to Crunching Tackles, where we break down the hardest-hitting social issues in sports. On today's show, the past decade has revealed a growing trend about the physical athleticism of our top competitors. Just how different is the human body today than it was a decade ago? What's caused this change? And how does it affect the way we talk about sports? My name is Chad Wiley, and with me, as always, is John Nekersov. And John, how are you doing this week? You know, I'm doing pretty good, other than the cold that I've been battling for the past, like, nine days. So you'll have to excuse my voice, because um, I feel I feel kind of growly today. I don't think my mood is growly, but maybe we'll find out as this podcast uh, unfolds. You never know. Um, but your tone overall, will follow your voice. <laughs> my tone may follow my voice. Who knows? We'll find out. But how are you? <laughs> doing good. Yeah. Um, I think we got a lot of really good feedback about the podcast last time and i feel really good yeah. about that so i feel like i feel really good about the way that that went and uh i'm i'm thankful to all the people who reached out to let us know that it was meaningful to you um it means a lot to us to hear that um not to you know immediately take this podcast and bring it back down to where we were last time but just to say that i'm really glad that we got that feedback and it makes me glad that we're continuing to to do a podcast like this when mm-hmm. you know we're not like this isn't like a huge podcast we're not making money off of this we're just doing this for fun so that we can stay connected and also so that we can have conversations that are meaningful to the people who who hear them and so i'm glad that it was in that way so yeah absolutely and you know a lot of people did reach out to me um you know with support and and prayers and you know obviously this is an important issue to me and i'm glad we kind of had the had the space to talk about it and Obviously, it is kind of like a downer. And sometimes, you know, there are lots of topics we cover on here that are fun and we'll have some fun topics today. And but we've also covered a lot of downers because the world is a tough place. Right. And I think it's really important for the world to have spaces, even in the sports world, to be able to have those conversations. Right. And I think I think that's been my big takeaway kind of from the last few weeks on the sports side of things. I guess it's just you know, it's been, we talked about this a little bit, but it's been a little bit upsetting, honestly, to see how few people are willing to carve out the space to have this conversation. Uh, right. Yeah. And so even to be able to have the space here, um, on the platform that we have to talk, um, was a privilege for sure. And, you know, I think it's, it was a conversation worth having. So thank you again for asking all the good questions and talking and yeah, uh, thank, thank you, you for yeah, thank you guys, and thank you, John, for for sharing your story, your perspective. Um, I think you you obviously have a very interesting one, and so I'm glad that you were willing to open up the life of yourself and your family to to us, so we could learn more about your experience. Um, like you mentioned, we are going to have some fun today. We're going to talk about some serious stuff too. Um, you're going to make me talk about the NFL, which is not something I want to do. <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit of baseball, which I'm excited about. We're going to talk a little bit about soccer and um, some trends we've seen about. Uh, the growth of the human body and how athletes today look different than they did a decade ago and certainly in the previous generation. And then we're going to wrap it up with a little bit of conversation about uh, the movies and a particularly good one that we have both seen uh, multiple times at this point. So Mm -hmm. we were going to get into all of that first though, John, I do wonder if you have any, just anything we don't spend a lot of time on it, but any additional thoughts regarding the continued Israel Hamas war particularly maybe any additional reactions from the sporting community you've seen and just any brief notes that you might have as we continue to, to monitor the story very closely. Yeah. 
I think kind of going back to the, what I was saying a little bit earlier, I think my big my big takeaway from the from the media perspective has been that people who are willing to talk about this have already made their basically their stances clear. And the people who are not seem to have kind of drawn their line in the sand and saying, I'm not willing to say anything more than this. And there are certain, you know, journalists and platforms that we follow um, that kind of dance around the topic in various ways and others that are, you know, facing it head on. Um, You know, I I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, but I think, I don't know. I just, my takeaway where we're at right now is that I just really wish that people would be willing to talk about this more. You know, I think it's it's deeply hypocritical that the silence that began in the week after the Hamas attack on October 7th has continued um, from a whole wide variety of angles that people are not willing to confront the facts about what's happening regarding in regards to the rampant anti-Semitism that we're seeing around the world right now. You know, there was... I guess it was yesterday or the day before recording on a Monday. And I think it was either Sunday or Saturday. There was like flights landing from Israel in Russia, in Dagestan, which is like a majority Muslim area of Russia. And there were just hordes of people basically storming the airport, trying to attack these people who were disembarking off the airplane. And the crazy thing was, these were not actually Israelis coming off the plane. It was people from that region, Muslims, who had gone to get treatments in Israel and were flying back. And so the people were completely misinformed of what was going on. But you see circumstances like that, and that's you know happening on American college campuses. You know, Jewish students are afraid for their lives. Um, you know, in our country, not like around the world, like here in America, um, and people are still like. Even if you support a two-state solution and support the rights of Palestinians to have their own state um, and want a ceasefire, not being willing to like openly condemn that kind of behavior and call it for what it is, which is rampant anti-Semitism like we've never seen out in the open since the 1940s, to me is kind of crazy um, or just is just insane, not even kind of crazy. So that's kind of where I'm at. Um, I don't know what your thoughts have been, but. No, it's interesting that you bring up like kind of the fear that people had to talking about this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, even people who are, who want to otherwise support Israel, like Alexander Zinchenko, who released a statement on his Instagram or posted a photo in support of Israel and then received like backlash from people. And so he deleted it. And I think in this cultural climate it's understandable why he wanted to delete it given just the vitriol that people on social media are getting for pro-israeli statements at this point i've been thinking a bit because last time that we podcasted we talked about the disappointing response of the black lives matter organization and i've been thinking quite a bit about the black lives matter movement specifically in the summer of 2020 and this idea of saying the phrase black lives matter and how there was a whole contingent of people who wouldn't say it Mm-hmm. Um, who would instead said all lives matter. And this is completely separate from Black Lives Matter, the organization. But to me, it always seemed completely morally clear that Black Lives Matter 
was a good thing to say. It's a, it's a true statement. And when those lives were being undervalued in their community, it's worth highlighting them. And I've seen some pro-Palestinian reactions that seem to be a lot like the All Lives Matter counter movement, where they're saying All Lives Matter so that they don't have to say that Israeli lives matter. Right. I think about the statement from Mohamed Salah, who is a soccer player who plays for Liverpool, who released a video in which he started by saying that all lives are sacred and should be protected. Great. True. And then he goes on to single out how Gaza needs humanitarian aid. But he won't even say the word hostage. He won't say the word Israel. And so even something like that, I'm, it seems so coded to me in anti-Semitism because he can say, well, of course, all lives are sacred, just like people can say all lives matter. But when it comes down to actually mentioning Israel, mentioning hostages who have been stolen, he refuses to do so while he does mention the aid that Palestine needs. I think listening back to our conversation last week, it's so clear to me that it is disproportionately the people who are who support Israel are the same people who actually support the 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 innocent civilians of Gaza significantly more than certainly Hamas, but even some pro-Palestinian people do. And there's this idea that comes with the ceasefire that says that it's that the easiest way for the ceasefire to happen is for Israel to stop firing, which is just not true. The easiest way for the ceasefire to happen is for Hamas to return the hostages and unconditionally surrender. But people point to Israel to be the ones to stop this because they know that Israel is the only reasonable power involved in this. They know that Hamas is so unreasonable and so non-negotiable and so hostile and because they're a terrorist organization that there's no conversation about how we could achieve a ceasefire by surrendering, by returning all the hostages because they know that there's no negotiating with these terrorists. So for somehow the duty then comes to Israel to be unusually, unusually reasonable in their minds to stop this when it's so clear to me that Israel is still just trying to retrieve their people who have been kidnapped and it's Hamas who are the ones who could put the easiest stop to this by doing the right thing and they won't. It's so clear to me that the IDF is the force who is interested in preventing as many civilian deaths as possible and Hamas is intentionally trying to cause the deaths of their civilians and it's so clear to me that the unfortunate reality of the fact that civilian casualties is part of warfare is just something that is seemed like something that in the social media era is just something that's completely unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, wo- I don't know how people expect to engage in warfare anymore without if if the standard is zero civilian casualties. And that seems to be the standard that people are holding Israel to. And they're doing so very selectively while completely ignoring that the the actual bad actor here is Hamas, but they know that they can't reason with Hamas because there's no reasoning with terrorists. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. I think it bothers me that people are not willing to actually apply universal standards to all parties involved here. Because if you actually apply standards fairly, you'll recognize, right, like Israel's government is not popular. And lots of political commentators are trying to use that as basically an excuse to justify 
Hamas's actions in the public opinion. They're like basically Israel's Israel's government is bad. Therefore, the war is Israel's fault. And therefore, Israel's not justified in responding. And to be honest, really, all that is, is the playbook that Hamas is trying to get people to use, right? Like, just because you're government is not functioning as properly as it should doesn't justify murdering civilians in that country. Like, can you imagine if we as America justified that in invading another country? Like if Mexico's government was not functioning properly and we're like, Mexico's government is not democratic. And then America just like invades Mexico and just like bombs a bunch of cities. Like that would that would be insane, right? Like that doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, the North American comparison is so funny because like what do you think would happen if either Mexico or Canada came across our border and just took 40,000 people? Yeah, and I mean that, what, like that would like, be insane. What what would we do? Side. What would we do? And the idea that there would be Congress people calling for a ceasefire in that situation is completely implausible to the logical side of my mind. Although based on what I'm seeing on social media, it seems possible that there is just such a open distaste for any sort of war that there might be some fringes who, even if, even if more of these people were America, but to be clear, Hamas did take Americans. Mm -hmm. So there are Americans being held hostage, but even if the attack was on American soil and they were all American hostages, there still is some part of me that seems like we just have live in a society that has no stomach for war because we are so quote unquote evolved. But the reality is that the terrorists don't have any of these moral scruples, right? They're more than happy to kill and to kidnap and to commit horrible atrocities. And so if the quote unquote civilized part of the world decides that we're not just going to not going to engage in warfare anymore, then we're going to be barbarized by the people who don't have that belief and who have no no second thought about committing just the most gross atrocities we've seen in in quite a long time. Right. And yeah, I, I think that people have to get off social media more and recognize that it is completely morally necessary that militaries do everything in their power to prevent civilian casualties as they try to achieve their military objectives. But the idea that we just have no purpose for military anymore and that that warfare is just over is just a completely unreasonable position to hold as we see time and time again as it's happening right now in Eastern Europe where it takes, sometimes it takes fighting to fight for your freedoms as Ukraine is doing. Sometimes it takes fighting to fight for your survival, as Israel's doing. And I just, I, I first thought about this during Afghanistan and our mm-hmm. the complete unwillingness to just leave a small contingency of troops in Afghanistan to keep our, not just our people, but our the translators and the, the, the Afghanistan natives that we had offered safety to, that we abandoned in that way. And I just, I realized in this moment that for some reason, a huge part of the American contingency just has no stomach for any sort of military confrontation whatsoever. And I don't know how society engages in that way when as students of history, John, we know that history is written through warfare, right? It has always been that way. And unfortunately it's always going to be that way. And the countries that refuse to fight 
don't don't last that long. Right. Yeah, and I think it's it's really like looking at the back at the sports side, like it is complicated to have teams and governing bodies grapple with those questions. Um, sure. Within the confines of a sports podcast or within the confines of your newspaper or within the confines of, you know, what you're doing before a game in terms of moments of silence and statements and flags and all that kind of stuff. But, and there's a huge but here, if you're willing to allow expression from one side, overwhelmingly, like when you're looking at games in the UK right now, like at the Celtic game, uh, I think it was this weekend, you know, you have a sea of pro-Palestine flags all over the place. You have people in the UK, you know, protesting in front of Jewish shops right now. Like, you can't tell me that's not about anti-Semitism because that store has nothing to do with Israel. It is simply a Jewish-owned store, right? And, you know, if you, if you are willing to turn a blind eye to that and condemn Israel for defending itself, right, while you're willing to turn a blind eye to the ties of all the Gulf states that we've talked about to terrorism— that we talked about last episode. You can go back and listen to that if you want. But if you're willing to turn a blind eye to that, you're willing to turn a blind eye to the rampant anti-Semitism around the world right now. And then say that all of this is Israel's fault. Like, I don't know what to tell you, quite honestly. Yeah. Like, you're willfully choosing to ignore facts in an entire people group for for reasons that, like, at this point, if you're backing, not like backing the Palestinian cause, it's another story but like if you're backing what is going on around the world right now targeted at jewish people like i i can't help but attribute very malicious motives to you you know what i mean yeah no 100 percent um i think i'm I'm sure we'll continue to kind of duck in and out of this conversation in the podcast ahead um particularly as as like you mentioned sports teams have to grapple with how much they want to be involved in sports. And I think their unwillingness to involve themselves in this issue might kind of lead to a conversation that's already starting about whether or not sports should be involved in these kind of geopolitical issues at all. And it'll be interesting to see if there is yeah. a post 2020 uh, course correction back to a pre, uh, I guess a, a course correction back to a pre 2020 mm-hmm. pre black lives matter kind of sporting relationship with politics. Um, I'm going to sit this one out and let you talk about the NFL. If you have a direct question to me, <laughs> you can address it to me. But um, I have zero interest in engaging in this topic at this time. Chad hates the hates the sport of football. Um, American football. American football, and, yeah. Well, yeah. Kind, of, kind of both right now, <laughs> to be honest. Chad, all forms of football Chad is opposed to. Uh, they are, that is not in any way connected to the Pittsburgh Steelers or Manchester United. Um, Correct. <laughs> I just want to briefly just say this is a total vibe change. The NFL has been a lot of fun this year. It's also been very strange. Uh, the Chiefs lost to the Broncos this weekend, which, like, who saw that coming? I think they'd lost, like, 16 games in a row to the Chiefs. Uh, and yet Patrick Mahomes had his own uh, version of the flu game, um, except it went very badly. Uh, so it's what so happened. That- <laughs> he had, he did the same thing that I do when I have the flu, which is yeah. <laughs> nothing. Yeah. So uh, take that off of his goat uh, pedigree. He's still not as good. 
uh, would you like a window into flu? Would you like would you like a window into my Sunday afternoon? Uh, yeah. So at about three forty in the, uh, Eastern time in the yep. afternoon, I'm watching the NFL Red Zone Network. Yep. My wife is sitting on the couch next to me, Megan, and she looks over at me and she says, "When did the Chiefs play?" And I'm like, "Well, first off, it's interesting that you're interested in when the Chiefs play. Let me check." And I told her. And then I let her know that, unfortunately, Taylor Swift was not going to be in attendance because she was beginning the uh, South American tour of her Eras tour. Mm-hmm. And um, all of a sudden, Megan decided that she did not, in fact, have three hours to watch the Chiefs game. And she went and did other things instead, which I just thought was thought was notable. So I think what we conclude from that is that uh, maybe the NFL's investment into <laughs> Swifty, the Swifty NFL fan pipeline maybe was not as successful as maybe we thought a couple episodes ago. Yeah, well, I, I just think it's very dependent on her physical attendance in, That's what in I'm the saying. stadium. I'm yeah, saying it's, yeah. it's not a conversion from... No, they're just, I wouldn't They're say, only there for Taylor. I, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't say there are any authentic NFL fans being uh, created through this experience. <laughs> I would just like to briefly, on a more football-centric note, I'd like to give a shout-out to um, the future of the Tennessee Titans franchise, uh, Billy Jeans, also known as Will Levis, Will Levi's, you know. You know it, he had I, an, I see what you're doing. Yeah, no, yeah, I didn't come up with that. It's not me. Um, he had an electric performance yesterday. He eviscerated the Falcons. He turned mm. D-Hop into prime D-Hop once again. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I'll freely admit I was not a Levis believer before and the Titans are a pretty bad team, but if he continues to play like this and this is not just a one hit wonder, um, I don't know. I, all of a sudden I don't expect to make the playoffs. The Jags are going to win the division this year for sure, but you know, maybe there's hope for the future, which I have found very hard to come by. Yeah, I would like to give a shout out to absolutely nobody. Um, <laughs> what about TJ? You like TJ? <laughs> no, actually, can I give a shout out to the Chicago Bears? Let me that's tell you a, why. It's an odd, odd decision, but shout out to the team that decided that they wanted to draft current backup quarterback Mitchell Trubisky over Patrick Mahomes in the 2017 <laughs> NFL draft because I had to watch a full half of Mitchell Trubisky football on sunday and um it wasn't great that's a fate worse than death honestly <laughs> and the fact that he was drafted second overall by the bears and patrick mahomes was drafted 11th in that draft um he was also drafted ahead of christian mccaffrey is just very funny to me and i i just want to i want to know how the scouting department over there in chicago are feeling about themselves for the past you know Six or seven years in the wake I of mean, that decision. I mean, I mean, given how badly they played against the Chargers yesterday, or maybe I played is a really strong word for their performance against the Chargers yesterday. They technically um. <laughs> were on the same field, yeah. <laughs> by most definitions. See, the the great thing about the NFL this year is that I really feel like almost anyone can beat almost anyone, with a few exceptions, and the Bears are one of those exceptions. Hundred percent. It's it's a they, tough, they might be the exception. Though, what's amazing though, I was looking at the standings before we did this episode. Do you know who the worst team in the AFC is? The worst team in the, the AFC. In the AFC. Is it the Chargers? Oh no, not even close. Ooh, this is gonna really test. Me. I I I'm trying to think. Patriots no. Bills no. 
Dolphins, no. I'm just going to go through every single team. Browns, no. Bengals, Bengals, no. This is riveting podcast material right here. <laughs> uh, just tell me. I don't know. No, you, you were right. It's the Patriots. Is it really? At the, uh, the record of two and six, they are the worst team in the AFC. William Belichick is in trouble. <laughs> William Belichick is in deep trouble. And I think maybe that is the cultural moment that we need to touch on for this NFL season. Robert Kraft hinted that if the Patriots did not make the playoffs this year, he might be fired. Will that happen? Probably not. Probably not. But the Patriots have gone from bad, from mediocre to bad to literally Terrible. worse than the Texans and the Titans. How do you do that? It's a wow. wonderful question. Wow, that's crazy. Good, so, good, good pull by you that. by let's post looking that. at yeah. the standings. <laughs> yeah, really good, insightful good research cut by you. Yeah. <laughs> um, John, on the subject of sports that matter to me, <laughs> <laughs> does this even matter to you that much? I, I don't even. know. I promise, <laughs> jaded, jaded football fan chat is gonna. This bit is gonna end soon. I hope. Um, the World Series is going on. Uh, the Rangers and the Diamondbacks are currently tied leading into the game that is starting right now, which is game three that I'm about to leave this podcast and watch here in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, tied 1-1. And um, it's been an interesting playoff season. The Astros lost, which was very exciting for everyone. The Phillies. That was, my, that was my World Series. Yeah, the Phillies lost a very dramatic series in which they went up 2-0 and everyone thought they were completely unstoppable and then proceeded to lose four out of the next five games. And had a pretty calamitous um, end to their season. So the World Series is kind of what it is at this point. I don't think either of these two teams are particularly compelling, which might indicate why the viewership was not very good for Game 1 of this particular World Series. But what has been interesting to me is that now we can finally look back on a full year of the Major League Baseball pitch clock and some of the other rule changes that have been specifically designed to decrease the game time. And by that standard, it seems pretty clear that this season was a smashing success. The average game time, according to ESPN, dropped to 2 hours and 40 minutes uh, this year, which is a 24-minute decrease from last season. Uh, this, had a, this season had a spike in batting average, and it also had the most stolen bases in over 40 years, which are both a big factors to the overall excitement of the product. The average game time had passed three hours in uh, 2016, and in 2021, it hit a record average of three hours and 10 minutes. Cool. So um, that means that we are down 30 minutes now from that that overall uh, highest average, which I think is pretty exciting for the league. And I just, as a small small sample size, I've definitely felt myself more engaged with televised baseball. Um, I find myself looking at my phone less. I find that the flow of the game is noticeably faster. Um, kind of like you look down at your phone, you send one tweet or send a text message, you look back up, and all of a sudden he's throwing another pitch. Like it really is, it really does feel to me like it is moving. And um, yeah, I wonder if you have any personal experience with it, but also what you think this means for baseball and if it's actually going to help it you know, bring in new fans or, or save its existing fan base? Yeah, I think I think it's interesting. You know, we've talked a lot about baseball on the show, and obviously I am not a baseball expert. I am kind of the, the target demographic will say that the MLB is trying to draw in to the sport through changes like this, right? 
I am a very dedicated sports fan that watches a ton of sports, but I watch very little baseball. I've been watching some of the World Series. You watch more golf and tennis than you watch baseball. Right. And I watch very little golf. So even even that demonstrates how little baseball I watch, right? Yeah. So, but but like the reality is I am a wide open sports fan. Like I will watch almost anything if you convince me to watch it. And for most of my life baseball has not really done that, right? And so I am the kind of person that baseball is trying to convince. And I don't know. I I I'm not operating from like a huge reference point here, but the World Series I have watched, which has been, I guess I watched some of the World Series and a little bit of the um, Astros Rangers series because I hate the Astros. And to be honest, nothing motivates me to watch baseball more than the Astros losing. That is the one reason that I will turn baseball on because I guess I don't have a team. This is just me rambling, but like, I don't know. It's hard for me to get into it. But I will say having attended a minor league game this season and having watched some major league, I feel like I have appreciated even to a very small extent the fact that things are moving along faster. Um, I've been to some college games where I don't think there was a pitch clock in place and those games seem to last forever. Um, So I think that having – there was an interesting article I read on The Ringer that talked about how much more – like the the variation in time – between um, the longest baseball game this year and the shortest has shrunk a lot. You can expect that most games will be around like 245-ish, and that'll be a pretty accurate kind of guesstimate. And that makes people blocking time out easier. Um, I know you've talked some about how you feel more locked into games, which we can talk about Um and I don't know, I think the one of the things I'm interested in is actually how it's affecting the players. Do you feel like it changes the way players are approaching games right now? Because like the Athletic, there was like a poll that they did with players where they liked it, but they also like seemed to not like it in the postseason. Has that been something you've noticed at all? Yeah, I, I do wonder if the... Um if the specific postseason changes that they want have more to do with the pitch clock or more to do with the way that managers have to manage their bullpen. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember the exact rule, but I know there's a minimum, there's a maximum number of times a manager can come out to visit a pitcher without making a substitution. And there's also a minimum required number of hitters that each pitcher has to face now before they can be uh, substituted for another bullpen pitcher. And so I think those kind of more strategic decisions are stuff that, often gets magnified in the playoffs where, you know, in the World Series previously, you might have a guy come out to only face one hitter, you know, in a very specific moment in the game. And that kind of strategizing is now gone. I haven't seen a lot of pitchers complaining about the pitch clock. I haven't seen a lot of players complaining about the larger base size. Um, I think it obviously is a bit of a strain on pitchers, hence batting average is going up overall. I think that obviously is a is a mark that, um, you know, pitchers do feel a little bit rushed, but maybe that's not entirely a bad thing. Um, I, I, I think that if they were going to make a change to the postseason, I think you would want to decrease the number of teams who are in it again. Mm. The fact that they have, you know, best two out of three wild card and then the best 
three out of five divisional series before you get to the championship series. The fact that like under a different playoff structure, the Diamondbacks wouldn't even have made the playoffs and they're now in the World Series obviously might be a counterpoint to that, that maybe having more teams is more exciting. But I do think that when you have a regular season that is as long and as sluggish as the Major League Baseball regular season is, that there needs to be a a bigger reward for doing well over the course of 162 games, significantly more so than like the NFL where it's only 16 or 17 games. I think when you're playing 162, that is certainly enough of a sample size to say we only need the division winners plus one or two to 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 round out our field because if you go out there and you play that much game that many games and you win the division, you've earned that spot. And so for a team like the Diamondbacks to come in with you know sub 90 wins and then they beat the the Dodgers and they beat the Phillies is kind of it's a cool story but it, it feels very undeserving to what the Dodgers and the Phillies had done in the course of their seasons to, to put themselves in that position. Hmm. Do you almost feel like the, the MLB is like cutting both ways and trying to like decrease product and increase product at the same time? A little bit. I mean, I feel like that, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah, right? shorter like, games, but also your, more games. Yeah, you're trying to make your product more valuable. And they're like, there's what, like 100 regular season games that every team plays? 162. That's like so many games. Like, yeah. how am I supposed to even remember, like, how many wins I have? Like, that to me is, I understand, obviously, that, like, it is a less physically grueling sport, at least to, like, most of your body. Obviously, like, there are certain muscles, like the like pitchers that, you know, there's a lot of wear and tear, right? But you're able to play more games of baseball than you are football in a season. If you played 50 games of NFL football, like, Every single player on your team would be injured by the end. Correct. Of the year. Correct. Every literally every single one. Um, but you know, I think that baseball fills a specific role in society. And the question is, can will these changes actually help baseball grow its role in American society beyond the fan base that it currently has? And that's kind of what I'm wondering. Like, do you feel like Obviously, you have a love for baseball, but do you feel like baseball's product has gotten more exciting this year? No. No? And I don't see baseball, in the social circles I'm at, I don't see baseball being more culturally relevant. Right. That could also be because a lot of the big market teams were bad this year. The Yankees were bad. The Red Sox were bad. The Cubs were bad. The Dodgers didn't make the World Series. The Astros, who people like to hate watch, didn't make the World Series. So a lot of the like important teams, like it, again, if if the Yankees and the Red Sox had made a big playoff run, we we might have seen something different. So part of it could just be it's a down year in terms of the big market teams, but I have not seen baseball be a bigger part of the culture. I haven't seen anybody in my personal life or on social media that like wasn't already watching baseball that's now mm-hmm. you know locked into baseball. I think for the people who were already watching baseball. Saving an extra 20 minutes on average per day of viewing time is nice. Right. But I think that the problem with baseball is kind of just baseball. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, I think that's a genuine, that's a genuine question, right? Because the NFL, I'm seeing a lot of different stats, but it seems like the average time of an NFL game is around three hours and 10 minutes. Right. Right. Which is longer right. than, a, than the average baseball game right now. And yet, obviously, NFL is ratings king by, like, not only a country mile, but, like, 
30 country miles. Yeah. So it's not about length only. Though I think length is a factor. I would prefer every game, every sport to be as long as a soccer game, which is generally around 120 to 130 minutes, period, including ad breaks. Yeah. Um, you know, that's just like, boom, I'm done. But I do sit down and watch football regularly because I want to watch the product on the field. And I think that I do feel like maybe there are athletes like Otani who can generate that kind of publicity, right? I see stuff like that, like the Otani clips come up in my feed when he's healthy and tearing things up. That's something that's relevant. And so I think like we're about to talk about star athletes, right? And changing star athletes. And I think... I don't think baseball is like an an unrecoverable sport because there are people who still like it. And I think there are interesting athletic things. Um, but I do think that this is maybe not going to really move the needle for them. will be in the long run. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree. Um, do you want to move on to our, to our big story and kind of introduce it? I know this is something that you, you were thinking about a bit Yeah, and uh, through, through, through the, um, through the soccer angle and then we can kind of take it a little bit wider. Although I think we'll, we'll mostly stay in the world of soccer. Yeah. Yeah. I think guess we can kind of start. So today was the Ballon d'Or um, ceremony in France. And that's the trophy that's given to the best player in the world for that year. Um, and Lionel Messi won it for the eighth time, which is three more than anyone else. MLS player Lionel Messi. That's correct. <laughs> this is very important content. He so the is great, the best soccer player in the maybe, world. Plays in America. Maybe he, an American star, even. Seems like it. I, I think that'd be a dubious claim, <laughs> but <laughs> but you know, I think we're allowed to have it a little. No, bit. it's worth like this is what this is what Apple paid for. Yeah, the the, yeah. the certified best player in the world plays in America. And that's what Apple paid for. That's what they got. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's the interesting question, though. And this is kind of what leads us into our topic for today. Because Lionel Messi helped lead his team to the World Cup this year. Argentina. It was an incredible win. Um, and, you know, it was just... In many ways, Argentina was a solid team, but he carried that team to the World Cup. It was a very much an individual performance that when the moments were big, Messi showed up. Um, but I think you could make a case that your man, Erling Holland, maybe deserved the title for best player in the world this year. Because Lionel Messi, across the board, was not the best player in the world this year. He's not a top three player in the world. No, not even close right now. He was incredible in the World Cup. Erling Holland wasn't even there. The Norwegian, burly Norwegian Manchester City striker um, who won the treble for Manchester City, won the Champions League, which is the competition of all the biggest teams in the world, in Europe, um, playing against each other. He won the Premier League for Man City, um, as well as a cup trophy, uh, which one I am forgetting in this current moment. I think it was the FA Cup, though. He scored 52 goals last season, which is a lot of goals and way more than Messi scored. It's a lot of unprecedented amount of real, goals. In a quote-unquote real league, too. Right. Um, and I totally get it being a World Cup year. The World Cup is the biggest trophy in the world. That the person, if you single-handedly lead your team to that, that's going to heavily weight your resume. But, I don't know. 
we've kind of we've got some questions about what the future of the superstar athlete is um, with Holland and another very unique talent that we'll get into a little bit. But first, Chad, I want to ask you: Was Erling Holland robbed? Yeah. Oh, he's of coming in he, hot. Of course he's he coming was. in hot. <laughs> of course he was robbed. This is the take I wanted from you. He scored 52 goals for the undoubted greatest club team in the world. Yep. Arguably the great, one of the greatest club teams of all time. Definitely of all time. Not Maybe not the best, but like one of the best. And in sure. that tier. And he scored yeah. 52 goals. Yep. He was, he's incredible. It's a lot of he, goals. And he, I, I, you know, Messi dragged Argentina to the World Cup basically mm-hmm. on his own. That's big. But I wouldn't say that Messi had a bigger individual impact on Inter Miami than than even what uh, or even maybe even for Argentina than what Erling Holland has had for City. City has been a top contending team for how many years now, John? How many um, years have they been like like a legitimate Champions League contender every single year? Seven, eight? Yeah, something like that. And how many times have they won the Champions League? Zero until this year. And who 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 was the key addition the year that they finally won the Champions League? Uh, Rodri. No. <laughs> you know it's not. I will just. Gonna, I mean, Rodri scored that goal that won the Champions no, League. Of it was not Erling Haaland, right? But time and time again, City have either overthought their way out of Champions Leagues or right. have just not had the crucial goal. And Erling Haaland has solved both of those problems because you never have to overthink when Erling Haaland is on your football team. For sure. You say, where's the big blonde man? And how can I get him the ball? Over and over and over. Unless you're and playing against William Saliba. In which case, you sure, can't score. Sure, of course. You know? yeah. <laughs> but, and time and time again, he, he did the thing. He, right, he did, he he did, did the did, thing a lot of times. He has, and this is, uh, we're going to talk about another player as well, but like, and it's just been so effortless as he has gone up and leveled up and leveled up. From, from his time in um, Austria to his time in Germany, he did not miss a beat. And then from Germany right into the Premier League, he never missed a beat. And for Jude Bellingham, coming out of Germany as well, mm-hmm. right into from the same team, arguably another one of the greatest teams of all time in Real Madrid, it's like, it's like there was no learning curve. He gets in there at whatever age he is, and he is immediately the best player at Real Madrid. And that's not the way it normally goes. A lot Mm. of times that doesn't work out. Even for older players like Eden Hazard at Real Madrid also comes in and it just never worked. He, he, he was, he was a great player at Chelsea. He comes in there and he all of a sudden just can't do it. And Jude Bellingham and Erling Holland have both made it seem so effortless that you have to wonder why can't anybody else seem to crack this exactly the way that they've done it? And I think that if anyone who is not named Erling Holland or Jude Bellingham and Kylian Mbappe, but only if he moves to a different team, <laughs> if anybody not named those three wins a Ballon d'Or in the next 15 years, I would be absolutely stunned. Hmm. I think it's interesting. I mean, we are seeing the new generation rise here. We've talked about this in tennis, right? The struggles of people to replace the big three, right? And in soccer for a long time, we had a lot of really great players, but we had a big two, 
right? It was Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, and everyone just saying which one's the better player this year. Of and course, it was a big three with Zlatan Ibrahimovic as well. But unfortunately, I mean, he was very good, but not on the same level. Let's be realistic. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, those two carried all before them, right? And carried statistical records like Erling Holland scored a lot of goals this year. And he still did not touch most of Messi's records for goals scored in a calendar year and goals scored in a season, right? Which is crazy. Let's but has Messi look. done it on a cold Tuesday night in Stoke, John? I mean, every time he plays against an English team, he scores like at least three goals. So, I know. I know. <laughs> so to be fair, I think he would do it on a cold rainy night in Stoke. Um <laughs> <laughs> I think I think like what's interesting here is that we have two players. Jude Bellingham literally single-handedly turned around El Clasico this weekend against Barcelona by himself essentially. He scored he had, one of the most remarkable goals I've ever seen. He had a distance screamer to level it while Real Madrid had played quite poorly up to that point. Levels the game at 1-1 and then slides in for, you know, a bit a little bit of a scrappy tap in in the end. But he made the difference when it counted, it, like in stoppage time against Barcelona, to win El Clasico. Um, he scored 13 goals in 13 games since signing for and Real. He's a, and he's a midfielder. He's a midfielder. He's a, literally 20 years old. Yeah, he is 20, and he looks physically like an NBA player. And, and that's the, that's the point, right? And so the two the two people who have done the same 13 goals in 13 games, Alfredo Di Stefano and Cristiano Ronaldo, literally like the two greatest Real Madrid players of all time. So, you're looking at... I've never at, heard of one of those people. Di Stefano played in, like, I think, like... I'm making this up, but it's like I think he was in the 70s. Okay. Or maybe the 60s. I think he was the 60s. I didn't watch uh, either either decade. I was not quite locked in soccer. Someone clearly has not read Inverting the Pyramid. And it's showing. Clearly. <laughs> um, I didn't read it closely enough, but that's another story for another day. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you have these two players, Erling Holland and Jude Bellingham, who are incredibly young, but seem to just, like, be invincible. It, But they're invincible in a way that players have not been in the past. And that's kind of the story that we're trying to paint for you today. Is That, that we're trying to, to tackle, you might say. You, you could say that. <laughs> you have... <laughs> You have unbelievably talented players, but they're also unbelievably physically gifted in a way that we really haven't seen before. If you watch like 1970s soccer for reference, I watched a ton of it during COVID, I would know. Um, the sport is literally complete. It's unrecognizable from what they it is. They all look today. so small. They're, they're, all, really they're small and spindly, and they don't really run. They're, like, these, little, they're no all these one, little like five, six white men. Or or they're tall, but they're like they have no muscle. They're yeah. just they they're athletically gifted, right? But they're playing a game that basically sports science didn't exist in the nineteen seventies and the nineteen eighties and even the nineteen nineties. Like the idea of what we know as sports science in soccer specifically, you know, started growing, but it was really introduced to the Premier League by Arsene Wenger, former Arsenal manager when he came to Arsenal in 1996. Um, that's kind of where you can track the beginning of something new, which was the idea that you could actually condition your players into being really good physically and like know exactly how good they are at a given point. And I think what we're seeing now is 
talents that are like the the full realization of 30 years essentially of sports science from really young ages of basically fine-tuning players physical attributes from a really young age so that they can be the very best they can be by the time they just become a pro like they're already ready to go because they've been their bodies have been tuned so well um like you watch erling holland and jude bellingham like they both have a great touch they have fantastic ball skills but to be honest like you watch them against Lionel messi and you're not like oh my goodness they can do things with the ball that i've never seen before they're not that kind of player. Yeah, they are supreme athletes who know when to show up in the right positions, and can literally out maneuver you, but also just push you off the ball at the same time, right? Like someone like a like a five ten guy trying to push Erling Holland off the ball does not happen. Right. Most of the yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, overall, over the course of the last century the human body on average and particularly among elite athletes has gotten bigger and stronger right over the last century swimmers have grown over four and a half inches champion swimmers have grown 4.5 inches uh the fastest sprinters have grown at a pace of 6.4 inches over the last century while on average the human oh average humans have only grown about two inches so either double or triple the average human growth that's crazy when when john McEnroe played tennis the average tennis player was between five eight and five nine now that number is well over six foot two inches for the average eight, like two or tennis player. Hmm. And in sports that we talk about, we are now talking about these people as hybrids of other greats. So Erling Holland doesn't just look and play like Zlatan Ibrahimovic, but he also runs as fast as Gareth Bale. Uh, Victor Wembanyama isn't just as tall as Shaquille O'Neal. But he's also as skilled as Steve Nash and hits three pointers like Steph Curry. Like right. it's, we now have to take like two or three of the greatest players of all time and combine them to describe the physical talents that we're seeing from this next generation of athletes. I was thinking about it earlier today, like the fact that Babe Ruth physically would not like make an MLB roster anymore. Like he was so overweight. Like right. Babe Ruth, the way that he existed, one of the greatest baseball players of all time like would be yelled at daily by medical doctors and, and sports scientists and trainers. And he would either have to lose a bunch of weight or he literally would be like off of the roster. Right. Um, and we're talking about Babe Ruth, right? Like physically Michael Jordan would look like a pretty average player in the league today. He of course would be incredibly skilled. And I think his game would translate to any era, but like mm-hmm. in terms of just physical attributes, he would now be in a very undersized player at his position. Um, Which was that not can, the case before? I don't think he was not necessarily undersized, but um, no, I don't think he would have been undersized at his time. He, he was playing a guard position, but now if he was playing someone like like someone like LeBron James is often playing the same position right. that 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 uh, Jordan played, and is you know at least three or four or five inches taller than you know Kevin Durant plays the same position as Michael Jordan basically, right? Um, and he's you know a full six seven inches taller. So um, I just think it's so fascinating and. For me, the conversation is kind of like, does this change how we compare different eras? Because so much of sports is comparison. And like, how do you rate this era versus that era? And on the one hand, yeah, if athletes are bigger and stronger and faster and a lot of like physical records are being broken, but also the competition has grown at the same rate. They've had the same opportunities. And if these former champions had played today, they would have also had the same advantages of medicine and, and doctors and 
sports scientists and things like that. So I don't think that it necessarily invalidates the, the, the records and legacies of legends gone by, but it's just a fascinating trend to see humanity achieve a new level of what the human body can achieve. And I think Erling Holland and Jude Bellingham have both kind of unlocked that this year because Jude Bellingham does not look like a midfield soccer player. Mm-mm. He looks like an NBA player. He's taller. He's lankier. He's faster than and a little bit leaner than the average midfield player you see. But he is an incredible box-to-box player. He both defends and scores. He's a full-field midfielder. And he's scoring at the rate that any striker would want to score at while also playing at some points like holding and controlling midfielder and looking like someone who could immediately just run off the field and go dunk a basketball. And you'd be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and you, you look at Holland, and you're like, this could be a tight end, easily. Future Travis Kelsey, right? Yeah, 100%. Like, he's got that that huge hulking build, but the speed at the same time. That like, I mean, I think he would be electric in the NFL, quite honestly. Um, I would love to see that happen. Um, but I think what's interesting on the flip side is that people also, to a degree, try to take a little bit away from them because of the way they play, because they are... Ultimately, to a degree, pretty simple players. I think Jude a little bit less so than Holland. But Holland is a simple player. You kick the ball to him, he scores, right? Sometimes there are flashy things he does, but most of the time, he just leathers the ball into the goal. And you're like, oh, well, he scored again. Like, that's too bad. Which is the, that's the dumbest take I've ever heard in my no, entire no, no, life. No, 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 no. But I think I know you're is- not saying that. I, so I maybe grew up, you are. I, I am to a degree, but not, not, not in a way that's disparaging him. Because I think what he's doing is the max that he can do at his position. And it's output. Like, what are you going to argue with it? Um, I grew up in the era, right, where, like, Andrea Pirlo and Iniesta and Xavi and Messi were the top of the game, right? You have these smaller midfielders that run the game based on just their control of the ball itself. It's not about their physical attributes at all. Holland could, like, pick up Iniesta and throw him around the room. Um, just like he could pick up Phil Foden and throw him around the room, right? But they were like, they were magicians with the ball in a different way. And so I think people look at this kind of new, like, robot breed of athletes that we're creating that seem like they're just like superhumans, right? And then people try, people do try to take away from their style points, basically, for the almost robotic, like specifically Holland, the almost robotic way that he just like eviscerates people. And I think it's, I don't know, I just think it's an interesting, it's an interesting reality that the the tactics of soccer with how physical everything has gotten, with how aggressive the pressing game has gotten, with how much faster the game of soccer has gotten, that a player like Holland is the perfect player for this age of soccer in a way that he would have been really good, I think, before, but maybe would not have been the perfect player for like the 2010 Barcelona team that Pep was managing back then. But he is the perfect player for Pep's Man City team that he's managing now, which is maybe a more evolved team. But soccer has changed, Pep has changed, and the players he's choosing to fit his mold have also changed. Are you with that? 
No, not at all. <laughs> and here, here's the problem, John, is that it's not as simple as Holland gets ball, Holland shoots ball, Holland scores ball, because he is in a position where his quote-unquote magic mm-hmm. is off the ball movement. Just like and Iniesta was tasked to be on the ball constantly. Right. And yeah. there are players at City today who still have that same role. Yeah. Whether Bernardo it's Rodri yeah. or Bernardo Silva or Jack Grealish. It's not like the roles have significantly changed. That's just not Holland's role. Right. But you can't watch Erling Holland's header at the weekend against Manchester United and see how wide open he is, completely unmarked, and think, oh, that just somehow happened. No, you have to like watch his movement. Watch the way that he runs and positions himself. He is operating at as high of an intellect as any player on the field is. He's just not asked to do 19 dribbles and stepovers. He's asked to, he is asked by Pep to 100 constantly be in the right position. And he almost constantly is. And it's the same criticism that Jude Bellingham gets. Because Jude Bellingham gets criticism. You can make your joke in a second. Because Jude Bellingham gets gets docked by people for scoring tap-ins right but you know where you have to be to score a tap-in right in front of the net and onside and he the reason why he scores those is because he's a timed it perfectly to be onside b positioned himself perfectly to be in front of the defenders and right there for the rebound and c calm enough to finish i i won't detract from from someone's positional awareness and off the ball movement one bit compared to Mm -hmm. what Iniesta or messi does on the ball that's no, uh, uh-uh. I have two. I have two responses to that. The first one is, if I should be watching where Erling Holland is positioned, maybe Manchester United center backs <laughs> could also do the same thing. <laughs> I, I am fully aware that it was Johnny Evans and Harry Maguire defending Erling Holland, and those aren't My, two of the great ta- tacticians like uh like your guy Saliba. But that's very true. Um, I will say that William Saliba left Erling Holland in a heap. Last time we played him, which was, you know, take some doing. Um, but my other critique, though, however, is that you've always hated on Thomas Muller for exhibiting the exact same characteristics that you just lauded so much just because Holland is bigger. Thomas Muller has been scoring goals for like the better part of a decade, more than better part of like a decade and a half simply by appearing in the right place at the right time. Yeah, and but yet Thomas you Muller... don't like him because he's just a little lanky and a little silly. No, because he plays the messy position, but he no, acts he like Holland. Yes, he does. No, he does not play a messy position. He is position. not. He is not the striker of that team when Corey Lewandowski was there or Robert yeah, Lewandowski he's just, was there. He's just, he's just, Corey Lewandowski. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Um, <laughs> a little politics moment for me. Yeah. No, but I mean Thomas Muller. He just appears and he scores goals. And you criticize more power, him more power for the him. exact same positional awareness okay. with okay, no taken. physical talent. Thomas Muller has no physical talent at all. But you know what that speaks and to? Still that scores speaks to the goals. What that speaks to, John, and you want to call me a hypocrite. What you're, <laughs> what you're leaving out the room for is my evolution as a soccer tactician. Because That's I'm true. new to this thing. And now, I'm, now that I'm seeing things in the big picture, right. maybe my position on Thomas Muller has changed. Maybe, maybe I find him... Quite charming and delightful. You maybe need to revisit the Thomas Muller highlights. I, I might have to do so. But um, I do. Now I'm at a point where I can notice that when all of the defenders are going this way <laughs> and Erling Holland decides to go the other way and someone, you know, lobs a little pass over to him and it's like, hmm, 
Looks like he's going to be wide open. <laughs> but that doesn't just happen, right? And No, no, of course not. It's it, it is incredibly demanding to be that aware. And so yeah, I I won't discount them for not being as ball dominant as mm-hmm. Messi or Iniesta or any or anyone else. Um I don't think the game has changed that much. Like like Pep wanted right. slots on at Barcelona. It didn't work out, but he saw initially he did see a role for him there for that kind of player and it it just didn't work out in that way. But there's always been a role for that kind of player. I, yeah. I don't want to get bogged too down in the weeds of, of you know specific talk soccer tactics, but I, I just think that it's really interesting that someone can be that tall and also be that fast. Mm-hmm. And and you know the ultimate example of this is of course Victor Wembanyama, who is now taking the NBA <laughs> by storm tall. <laughs> and is both the tallest man and one of the most skilled men you've ever seen play basketball. I and don't know how it's possible. It doesn't make any sense. It you doesn't. look there is quite literally never been an NBA player like him before. There have been a, a lot of good bigs who can shoot but not who can dribble and have that kind of handle and dribble through other players' legs and just go crazy. And it, he is a, another one that has just completely broken the mold and changed the way a basketball player can look. And I think I, I, I wonder how far this can go. Like I, how far can human evolution take these guys? Yeah, I think the great example to leave this at is the NFL, kind of wrapping back around. Yeah. Um, because the NFL has completely changed based on the physical makeup of its players in the last two decades. Um, obviously, Michael Vick is maybe as far back as my NFL history knowledge know, goes, is one of like the foremost early examples of like the truly mobile quarterback um, who can eviscerate defenses both with his arm and his legs. Um, and for a while, you know, you had quarterbacks in general who would sit in the pocket and you know would splash passes all over the field and you know that's the Tom Brady mold that's the Peyton Manning mold and they won Super Bowls they won Super Bowl after Super Bowl that quarterback is completely obsolete now like you still have good pocket passers who are in the league but you have to be able to extend plays like you don't have any top tier talent as far as I can think of in the NFL right now that are just like sitting in the pocket on every play. Um, and I think that goes to show, right? Like the, the most elite players we have, Jalen Hurts, Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, are actual dual threats. And they can do things both with their arms and with their legs that like the previous generation of quarterbacks could not do, right? And even though Brady obviously did win a Super Bowl, relatively recently, right? That kind of like, to a degree, disproves this point. The new level of quarterbacks that we're seeing do have to move. And Brady was pummeled often when his O-line wasn't good at the Bucks because he couldn't move, right? Especially later in his career. So, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's an interesting counterpoint. No, I do. I think you're leaving out a couple prominent examples of, of true pocket passers still who have had great success. Joe Burrow, Matt Stafford, Jared Goff. No, but Joe, like that. Burrow can move. I mean, sure, but like, he's not like Eli, a sprinter, I mean, but not like, yeah, but like significantly more than Eli Manning or Brady or Ben Roethlisberger. I, I wouldn't say he's like necessarily. I think he can move more than than Brady could from what I've seen. Maybe, yeah, maybe more. I mean, Brady wasn't as bad, but like, you know, there, there have always been players who can move, but he's not, he's never looking to run the ball necessarily. 
he's there is a difference between people who can extend the play in the pocket or even outside the pocket but behind the line of scrimmage and quarterbacks who actually look to run the ball. Right. And that's true. That's fair. Burrow's not necessarily looking to do that as much. But, but I mean, even against the Niners, he did yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Right. It I mean, is that's interesting. An important part of it, offense. You're, yeah. Your overall point is, is, of course, spot on. And it's fascinating that what was viewed as such an outlier, you know, 15 years ago with Michael Vick is now like how many teams would want Michael Vick today? Like he mm-hmm. was just a little bit too late to his time. Like, yeah. He would have been the best case version of what Lamar Jackson is now, quite frankly. Like, he was electric and it was just too early to the league. Right. Um, it's an interesting point. And I think that part of that is less so that there have been less, you know, obviously that's not as much as statement of less gifted athletes, but it's more so about the type of athletes who now think that they can play quarterback as mm-hmm. opposed to being siphoned off at, at the youth level to running back or wide receiver or cornerback, um, you know, in any other world, Jalen Hurts would have been a running back. Um, you know, like just kind of like how they tried to make Tim Tebow a tight end or a, mm-hmm. or a running back when he was trying to be more mobile. And um, there has been a level of stylistic decision from coaches to just allow players to look different and be in that position. And it's obviously been hugely effective. If you look at the Super Bowl champion, Super Bowl quarterbacks who have either made or won Super Bowls over the last five years, a lot of them can move, and a lot of them really like to run. Uh, the Super Bowl this past time with Hurts and Mahomes was a perfect example of that. And um, it'll be interesting to see if this is actually a physical trend or more of a stylistic trend, and if so, if it ever reverts back. Um, but I, I do wonder, one, if, if and my last point is, I wonder if in the long term we're going to see durability issues with these kind of quarterbacks. Hmm. Because Cam Newton didn't make it that long. Colin Kaepernick didn't make it that long for for other reasons, but but also because he was he was getting hit a lot. Um, so much of the Brady thing is that he played to forty five. Could could Jalen Hurts play to forty five with yeah. the types of running that he's doing? I have no idea, but I, I would strongly doubt it. Yeah, I think, and that kind of honestly kind of rephrases my earlier point about soccer, and as I think that we're seeing we're seeing style change. And so we're seeing the type of player that that sets the tone for how a game operates change, right? In the past, you had kind of, you know, you could compare Brady to someone like Xavi who would, you know, spray passes around and sit in, in an A kind of pocket and control the pace of a game. And now you have physically forceful players like Holland and Jalen Hurts and even Mahomes to a degree that are imposing their will on the peak of their sports in a different way um, than we've seen in the last couple of decades. And I think, I don't know, it's, it makes for good viewing content. I think that's a lot of the reason why sports like the NFL are surging in like the NFL is more popular than it's ever been, which yeah. is like kind of crazy to think given how some people were talking about it like eight years ago, but the NFL is surging. And I think it is a lot of it is because of the explosive product on the field that we're seeing. Hundred percent, yeah, and that's that's the magic that to bring our conversation full circle. Baseball because mm-hmm. hasn't been able to tap into, right? But the NFL certainly has through through reinventing their style. Uh, John, briefly as we get out of here, I want to spend at least you know a couple of minutes talking about uh, Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. Correct, a movie that you and I both saw, and I think we both found frankly astonishing. We have mm-hmm. both uh, purchased a, a book that we now plan to read. 
We, we can we can start crunching tackles book club as we we should yeah. as we discuss Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, but what we're looking at is a movie that has it, it's very much in conversation with Oppenheimer as a mm. three plus hour historical epic documenting um, the greatness and also fatal failings of of humankind. Um, but it is a thoroughly immersive portrait of a culture and a society and a culture to whom incredible amounts of violence was committed against and it it leaves you with a very haunting feeling mm-hmm. and um it's getting outperformed at the box office by five nights at freddy's and taylor swift's movie and so i'm just here to champion that people should go see Kills of the flower moon and should support it and watch it and then take their friends and watch it again yeah i mean I, it it's genuinely such a moving story. Like it is long, um, but you know, if you can sit through an NFL game, then I think you can sit through the Killers <laughs> of the Flower Moon too. Put Certainly. your phone away Certainly. and sit down to watch it because it is. I don't know. It's just a reminder of basically of the sin of the human heart, right? And how easily we, as a society, choose to look at evil and then ignore it in our community. And so much of the story is about the complicity of the white community um, surrounding the Osage that basically enabled those who were murdering the Osage for money. Um, yeah. And, you know, without being too on the nose, like there are a lot of comparisons. It's, a, it's very much a movie for its time. You know, asking the questions about what do we... You know, what does it take for us to be silent about injustice? Um, you know, what's the line that you're willing to cross to stop speaking out for others? Um, and I think that's the question that Scorsese asks in that movie. And I think he does a phenomenal job. I think Oppenheimer is still my movie of the year um, in our in terms of like Oscar conversations. Um, but I think it's an all-time historical epic it's it just puts you in that time like nothing like very few films i've ever seen um and it's yeah i think i think it we all need to spend time thinking about the way our society treats each other and i think killers of the flower moon helps us think about that yeah i think if if you're don't be deterred by being unfamiliar with the story because Mm -hmm. honestly going in there pretty unaware uh, makes the movie all the more effective when you yeah, see sure. how pervasive and how blatant the atrocities committed were, how how deep the web or how thick the web of lies and deception and betrayal go. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is one of those messy movies that will, even into hour three, is still going to be shocking you with how just pervasive the evil is. And I would also say that if uh, any previous experience with Martin Scorsese movies have deterred you from most particular uh, violence or explicit conduct perspective also don't be deterred because Oppenheimer is a very or not Oppenheimer because Colors of the Flower Moon is a very different Martin Scorsese movie mm-hmm. um, all of that kind of thing is is toned down it's a movie that I would show to, to anyone and not feel any trouble about doing so and so um, yeah I, I, I echo everything you say about it being a moment a movie fit for the, for this moment it's left me pondering a lot of questions and I think that it'll continue to do so um, as I continue to hopefully dive deeper into the story and try, mm-hmm. try to learn as much as I can from 
was, as far as I can tell, previously an, an undocumented part of our history, but something that is uniquely fascinating to me. Um, I much like like the Tulsa race riot, which I didn't find out about till like a year ago that it ever happened. Another one of those things where it's like I can't believe that this was part of our history. Right, and that's why we, you know, bang the history drum repeatedly on this podcast because it's important. We can't understand ourselves. Uh, without understanding our history. That's something I firmly believe both about our sports and about our society at large. Um, and we see that in a conflict like with Israel right now. Yeah, that's you know? true. And we see that in our own history as America, that understanding history is important. And that's the real, you know, if you don't care about your history class, let yourself be immersed in Marty's history class is the is the the plea that I will give you. Let yeah. Marty and Christopher Nolan this year. And this really, this is a year for history. We have Napoleon still to come out. The historical epic has never been more back in terms of true. cinema. And that's something that we champion here on Crunching Tackles. So. Students of history have never been more thriving at the movie theaters. <laughs> it's 100% true. Yep. Uh, anything else before we get out of here, John? No, I think we've kept the listeners long enough. I, I'm looking at my time right now and I'm like, whoa. It's very long. We, <laughs> yeah. we did a podcast. So thank you guys who did stick here through to the end. We really appreciate it. And uh, if you have any thoughts about the World Series or about uh, freak athletes or about the NFL season, you can direct any of those comments to either John or I. If you have any disparaging comments about the Pittsburgh Steelers, you can uh, politely keep those to yourself. Um, but other than that, you can Noted. access us on the, uh, the platform X, formerly known as Twitter. Also, Instagram, <laughs> we are there as well. We are. And uh, you can, of course, subscribe to the podcast. Give it, a, give it a rating, give it a review, and you'll know the next time we have a podcast, which will most likely be in about a couple weeks. So yep. until then, John, when we have a podcast on another topic somehow related to both sports and culture, I hope that all the listeners continue to be well and be safe, and I'll talk to you later. All right. Cheers, guys. <laughs>